It is the building blocks of protein. It is very essential for plant cell division and vital for growth. Global shortages are causing farm input costs to skyrocket. A better way to farm shows you how to take control of inputs and maximize profits so you can farm the way you want. Now, from America's heartland, here's your host. Rod here at A Better Way to Farm. Excited to get to start this with you guys. We are doing the 12 Days of Nutrients. We try to do this every year and to dig out new information and to share with you. We're really hoping that you find this enjoyable. We hope you get a little pleasure out of it. We're going to do our best Christmas sweater. We always invite you to put a picture up with you and your favorite Christmas sweater. Hopefully I have 12 different ones so we don't have to rerun. We're going to go through the 16 essential crop nutrients. We're going to do a pretty deep dive into these and see what it is that we can learn from them. Last year in some of our studies was the year that we came up with and figured out that boron is important for phosphorus uptake. And when I work on phosphorus and boron, I'll talk to you more about that. That is not something that I discovered. It's just something that I found in digging through these books. What I'm going to do with you here and for these next 11 sessions is I'm going to share with you, but it's not going to be my opinion. I am not sharing what I feel. I'm not sharing what I think. I'm going to share with you from a whole host of books. These books sometimes are hard reads. Some of them are an easy read. I encourage you, guys, this is your business. Dig into it. Figure out what you can learn. A great place to start is with the Midwest Laboratories Agronomy Handbook. It's an easy read and it's loaded with really good, solid information. I would recommend after you work through that that perhaps another great resource to have, it's not such a fun read, but it's called the Fertilizer Handbook put out by the Fertilizer Institute. This is very hard to find. This is the only book that I use that I cannot have you go to Amazon or go to Midwest Labs and get. I picked up a little book over the last year called the Western Fertilizer Handbook, which I find very interesting. Of course, used and it's old, but guys, a lot of this stuff, first edition, 1953, fourth edition, 1965. The problem is, over the last 50 years, we've decided that we could do it better, and we could do it by denying science. And the fact of the matter is, guys, the science that these guys had figured out in the 50s and the 60s is still the science. It's why we're coming back and seeing cover crops. Other books that I've really enjoyed reading is the Hands-On Agronomy by Neil Kinsey. I really enjoyed reading From the Soil Up by Donald Schrieffer. A couple of the harder books that I would look at is Soil Fertility and Fertilizers. It's written by Pearson. It's in its eighth edition. We have a book here that is very intense, about 1,100 pages, called The Nature and the Properties of Soils. And so uh, another great one to get. And I don't think that I mentioned the last two. Uh, another good book for starting is by Arden Anderson. It's called The Anatomy of Life and Energy. I would encourage you to grab these off of Amazon. And then my possibly my hardest read, and I'm not clear through it yet, but I'm working on this book by S.A. Barber called Soil Nutrient Biability. And when we look at soil nutrient bioavailability, we are digging into some pretty deep stuff. And so I'm going to quote a lot of these. Please know that those things that I'm sharing with you here are not something that we just dreamed up. And I'm hoping, guys, that you find these to be things that bring you great value. And it's in the spirit of the 12 days of Christmas. We're going to do the 12 days of nutrients. Please get out your best Christmas sweater, grab some hot cocoa, and sit down and see what we can grab here. 
I'm going to try to start each time from something that I found. It's called the roles of the 16 essential nutrients in crop development. Each day I'm going to start by reading what they say that the roles or the primary roles of each nutrient is. And the primary role of nitrogen, according to these guys, is it is necessary for the formation of amino acids. It is the building blocks of protein. It is very essential for plant cell division and vital for growth. It's directly involved in photosynthesis. It's an important component of vitamins. It aids in the production and the use of carbohydrates, and it does affect energy reactions in the plant. Now, reading all of that, we think that nitrogen is the savior. It is the big one. It's the one we put the most on. And it would make sense that the more we put on and the more we put on, the better it gets. But we're going to find out today that that's not necessarily true. So let's jump in here and see what we can learn. The first thing that I want to talk about the fact is that there is a lot of nitrogen. As a matter of fact, every acre has 35,000 tons of nitrogen above it. The atmosphere above one acre has 35,000 tons of N. It's about four-fifths of the atmosphere, actually, is in the form of N2. Now, guys, I'm going to use a lot of notes because as I prepare and I, each night I sit down and I write and I write and I read and I write and I come up. So there's going to be a lot of reading here, but I'm hoping to get your interest enough that you'll start digging in and doing some things on your own. I want to start out of soil fertility and fertilizers, and I'm actually going to go to page 170. Again, we're going to quote our sources, make sure you guys are aware of what we're doing here. And when we get on to page 170, 70. Let's see what they have to say. They start with, they're talking about the different forms of nitrogen that we can put on and have been used over the history of farming. Of course, the first one would be NH3 or anhydrous ammonia. The next one they talk about is aqua anhydrous ammonia, aqua ammonia, aqua NH3. And all they do here is they take anhydrous ammonia and they put it into water, and then you come up with something that instead of being 82% nitrogen is about 25% nitrogen by weight. It's easier as far as handling, and it's a lot safer. However, the problem is it takes a lot of volume, a terrible amount of volume. The next product they talk about is ammonium nitrate, NH4NO3. This particular product is made by reacting nitric acid with anhydrous ammonia again, it has declined in usage mostly because of security reasons and has actually been banned in several countries. So we don't, I don't know anybody who uses that. The next thing they talk about is ammonium sulfate, which is a great product. If you're needing nitrogen, you know, it's, it's a great thing to use if you need sulfur. This is a tremendous product. If you're farming in an area where you fight high pH, it helps you to farm around high pH. I only know how to farm around it. And ammonium sulfate is your friend for that now. The disadvantage of ammonium sulfate is it has a relatively low content of nitrogen. The analysis is 210024. So every 100 pounds has 21 pounds of nitrogen and 24 pounds of sulfur. But if you do need sulfur, it's a fantastic product for you to take a look at. Another form of nitrogen would be your ammonium phosphates, whether that be monoammonium or diammonium. And, you know, we're talking about 18460 or 11520. And when we take a look at those products, we're probably applying those for the phosphorus. We're not trying to get our nitrogen there, but there is some there. Another product that is not widely used but has been used in the past is ammonium chloride. Obviously, we are well aware of the fact that we're not 
big on chloride that we want to put in here. And uh, so it's another product that has not caught much traction here. Another product that's used pretty commonly in China is ammonium bicarbonate, but it's being phased out in favor of urea because ammonium bicarbonate is relatively low quality and it's very unstable. Urea-based products are another product that are widely used, and we do like the urea products. They're um, a great product to work with, and uh, they are subject to volatilization, so you're going to have to figure out how you're going to stop that and take a look there. So those are some of the major ones. Oh, there's also calcium ammonium nitrate, another product that's used mostly in vegetables and trees out on the West Coast up in the great Northwest. And so those are some of the things that you can look at, but we're in the Midwest looking at corn mostly. We're probably talking about anhydrous ammonia, or we're talking about urea, or maybe we're talking about ammonium nitrate, which I don't know why that wasn't in there, but it's another product. Or we're talking about UAN, you know, 3228 or some form thereof. Guys, as we look at these things, we've got to know how, what is the plus and the minus of each one. The number one thing to remember, the real plus of urea is this. It's 100% in the ammonium form. Nitrate is what runs away from us. So it has to convert from ammonium to nitrite to nitrate. And there's two different soil bacteria that do that. And so when we're looking at that conversion process, that's why putting on anhydrous ammonia early in the fall is not a great idea. And they talk about the fact, you know, that, that well, as long as the soil temperature is below 50. Guys, losses don't stop at 50 degrees. They reduce. They stop at 32, actually 31. And so when we get that soil temperature below freezing, our losses stop because the bugs go to sleep. However, then we can come back and we can say, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to put in a stabilizer. And guys, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on stabilizers. We talk about that in our fundamentals of agronomy. There's probably 20 or 25 stabilizers out there now. According to what we can find, if you read their data very carefully, there are only three of them that actually work. And one or two of those that do work are tremendously hard on soil bacteria. They are indiscriminate bactericides. So not only do they, they kill the nitrosinomus with the idea of being we kill them off, they grow back. And that's true. My question has always been, what other bacteria are they killing? Because they don't discriminate. They don't just pick out the nitrosinomus. You know, I'm going to go deer hunt here on Saturday, and I'm not going to shoot rabbits, and I'm not going to shoot squirrels. I'm going to be very discriminate in what I do. But nitrosinomus are just collateral damage along with everything else. And so that's something to consider if we're going to stabilize it. But the NH3 is obviously in a pure ammonium form, but it's subject to conversion very quickly. Applied in the spring is probably a better choice, but the purpose most people do is so they can go ahead and get it done. They want to get their nitrogen on right now. So let's see what we can get out of this. My new book here, my little book called the Western Fertilizer Handbook. What did they have to say here that caught our eye? They talked about the conversion. The conversion of nitrogen in organic matter and ammonium compounds to nitrates is an important process. The conversion of various sources of nitrogen in the soil to nitrogen is accomplished by soil bacteria. These bacteria are affected by the same conditions that govern our plant growth, including soil moisture, aeration, and temperature. The nitrosomonas bacteria convert ammonium nitrogen to nitrite nitrogen. The nitrite nitrogen is converted into nitrate nitrogen by the nitrobacter bacteria. When it gets into nitrate, guys, that's when it sloughs off into the groundwater. For these bacteria to function, the pH, among other factors, must be correct.
If the soils below a pH of 5.5, the converting power of these bacteria is retarded. This retardation also occurs above a pH of 8.0, another reason for maintaining proper pH levels. And so I thought that was interesting to talk about everything matters. You guys are going to hear me say that a bunch of times as we go through here. Everything we do matters. And so it's one of the reasons that would make sense that ammonium sulfate would really be a great product in those ultra-high pHs because for a moment, and just for a very short time, that sulfur is going to help to buffer that area. It's not going to change it. I wish I could tell you how to take a pH of 8 down to a pH of 6.9, but I can't. But it would make sense as to why that works. You know, where we're talking about stabilizers and such, and one of the things we get into is to water quality. And I'm not going to get all political here. I have some very definite political views, and I'm not, but I'm not going to get into those. The fact of the matter is this. When we look at water quality, another term that you can substitute for water quality is economics. I personally do not want to pollute. I don't. But I'm not out hugging a tree, and I'm not telling you you got to get an electric car, and I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life. Unfortunately, I do not have a private jet so that I can fly around and tell everybody how they've got to be eco-friendly. However, what I am going to say in regards to nitrogen is this. If you're eco-friendly, then what you're going to do is you're going to save money. And that turns out to be a really big thing when it comes to the economics. Because here's the deal. Nitrogen that's going out that tile into the groundwater, nitrogen that goes down the creek, nitrogen that ends up in the Gulf of Mexico, that's just like shipping your money to Louisiana. So there's no reason to overuse nitrogen. We want to make sure that we're putting on in a form, we believe in the four R's strongly. We want to see the right product at the right place at the right time at the right rate. And the industry loves to talk about those. They don't really love to do them. It's kind of like one of, I won't, I won't let her remain nameless, but just this week, one of the superstars who's telling you what you've got to do to be green and how you've got to reduce your carbon footprint took her private jet from California to New York so that she could tell other people how they need to reduce their carbon footprint. I find that super ironic. But the whole deal is here, the industry tends to do that. They talk to you about the four R's, and it sounds good to the people who live in town, but are we really doing it that way? Is it really the right time to put it on in the fall when we know that nitrogen need is going to come, what, next July? So we apply something in October and hope it's still there in July. Just some things to consider. Water quality is huge, guys, but it's tied very closely to economics because in the event that we overuse it and it goes down the creek, it costs us money. I have a good friend named Sam who's actually on here, I think. I saw his name come up. Sam talked about the fact that before he met us, it was taking 1.2 pounds of nitrogen to grow a bushel of corn. Today, on that same farm operation, they are growing a bushel of corn for 0.7 pounds of nitrogen. What does that mean? Well, every bushel is now requiring a half of a pound less. And in today's dollars on nitrogen, which is basically a dollar a pound, that's 50 cents a bushel. So if you're growing 250 bushel corn and you can save 50 cents a bushel in nitrogen inputs, all of a sudden, boom, you just made another 125 bucks an acre simply by doing the right thing by using the right product, the right place, the right time, the right rate. And so I think there's some things to consider. I want to get into this uh, soil nutrient bioavailability here and uh, grab a couple things out. This is a really good book. It's a little bit of a harder read. And I'm going to, when I do potassium next, 
Instead of doing NPK, I'm going to do NKP. I'm super jazzed up about potassium, and you're not going to want to miss that episode. I can assure you, this here was talking about, in the study of nitrogen, it says nitrogen as NH4, which is the ammonium form, in soils with appreciable cation exchange capacities will only leach in proportion to the quantity in solution. When the nitrogen is in the nitrate form, however, it is all in soil solution and can be readily leached. The amount of leaching per unit of water in excess of field capacity will vary with the volumetric moisture content at field capacity. What are they saying there? Well, first of all, they're alluding to the fact we have believed very strongly that we should never apply nitrogen at a rate of more than 10 times the cation exchange capacity. Guys, all these terms, all these words, they all work together. They're all really important. We've got to understand how they mean, what they mean, and how they fit in. The cation exchange capacity is the holding capacity of your soil. Let me give you this example. You have two bowls. You have a bowl that, like you would eat breakfast cereal out of, and then you have a serving bowl that your wife would serve salad out of or you would serve a salad out of, right? It's great big. So a low CEC, a low cation exchange capacity, is the little bowl. It can't hold very many cherries, okay? The big bowl, the salad bowl, it has big holding capacity, so it can hold a lot of cherries. What does that mean? Soil with a high CEC can hang on to a lot more nutrients, and especially nitrogen. And it's super important to understand that. If you have a CEC of 10, in essence, you're pretty much guaranteeing everything above 100 pounds per trip is going to go down the creek. That's what it said. Even in the ammonium form, it has to have the appreciable cation exchange capacity or it will leach. Now, if we put it on at the right rate, let's say your CEC is 15, so you can put on 150 pounds at a shot. Now what are you losing? You're only going to have leach what's in the nitrate form. And so when we apply UAN, which is 25% nitrate, that's the part that's subject to loss, and there's not anything we can do to protect that. It's just going to go if we get excess moisture. And so what do we want to do? We want to take a look at how a good stabilizer is going to hold the ammonium form in the ammonium form longer. And that's going to be how we hang on to that nitrogen and get it to stay with us. As we look at the Anderson book called The Life and Energy in Agriculture, grabbing a couple of things that he said here that I found very interesting. Nitrogen is utilized by plants in two forms, nitrate and ammonium. Both have distinct functions. The nitrate nitrogen is needed early in the growing season to stimulate growth of the leaf throughout the season. However, the ammonium form of nitrogen is needed later for fruit and seed production. So he was talking about the fact that you would not expect tomatoes to set any fruit if the nitrate is too high and the ammonium is too low. The two forms can switch back and forth. However, most of the time, the switch that we see is from ammonia into nitrate. I love this quote right here from page 18. Nitrogen, along with potash, is being overused, misused, and abused. It produces great profits for the fertilizer industry. Nitrogen is the major electrolyte in the soil and living tissue. Without nitrogen, there is no life. It is the primary component of protein and amino acids. It is capable of entering the plant without phosphate, and given certain conditions, it will take potash in with it. This condition, though typical of modern agriculture, creates a situation ripe for nitrate toxicity. When we get nitrate toxicity, what happens? Well, we end up 
with nitrogen substituting for calcium in the cell membranes. We end up with potash burning. We end up with low sugar production. We end up with poor photosynthesis. This causes an overall mineral deficiency. And finally, the fallacy of current food production plants that resonate at different frequencies, this attracting a lot of other insects. Guys, overusing nitrogen is not the answer. Again, when you read what it does, you think, man, I want a lot of that. It's going to be the answer to all my problems. Neil Kinsey says in his hands-on agronomy, an excess of magnesium as well as nitrogen in the soil initiates the processes which prevent the crop from growing dry and nutritionally ripe. And so what are we looking at there? When we have excess nitrogen, we end up with a plant. It doesn't dry down. It dies down. And one of the things that we've been able to do is to take a look at how to have that crop continue to actually stay healthy all the way to the end so that we can keep getting grain fill and we can get physiological maturity. I want to grab some quotes here out of Neil's book, Hands-On Agronomy. This is something I've read multiple times. Every time I go through it, I pick up a lot more things. One of the things that I want to make sure that we understand is how to diagnose it. Because oftentimes in the industry, we take a look at a crop, it's yellow, and so we just immediately assume that it's a nitrogen deficiency. Now, could it be? Sometimes. If it's yellow, it could be potassium, it could be sulfur, it could be a lot of things. But we see yellow and we just think, hey man, we're going to go out here and we're going to put on some in and we're going to fix everything that's wrong. We need to understand, number one, if the plant is yellow at the top and it's working its way down, that's probably a sulfur deficiency. If it's yellow at the bottom and it's working its way up, it could be nitrogen. Okay, could be. However, nitrogen deficiency starts with a V at the leaf at the bottom, in a V. A potassium deficiency, like nitrogen, will show up in the oldest leaves. How do you tell them apart? Well, a nitrogen starved plant will exhibit its signs at the leaf tip and move down. Potassium starved plants, the whole edge of the leaf is yellow, will look burnt, and will move in. So there's three yellows here that we're worried about. New growth, sulfur, old growth, either in or potassium. And then it is, if it's around all the way to the edges, it's potassium. If it's a V starting out at the tip of the plant working its way back, it's nitrogen. I think it's important that we be able to diagnose these things ourselves and not be dependent upon other people. He was very adamant in talking about something that has been prevalent in the past. I don't know that it still is, but it's worthy of a check. And he says, if you're using 32 or 28, he would like you to go up on the top of the semi when they get ready to unload it and lift the lid. If the ammonia that's in there knocks you off the top of the trailer, not a good plan. Because actually, free ammonia should only be about 1%. Because if it has a strong, strong smell, that's free ammonia that's leaving, and you're not going to get that. And he says at times, suppliers have been known to inject anhydrous ammonia into the nitrogen to get the level up to 32. You should never buy any nitrogen that is less or excuse me, you should never buy ammonia at nitrogen that is more than 1% ammoniated. In other words, we don't want it to be something that they've filtered NH3 through in an attempt to get that level way up so they can sell it to us because it's going to run away and we're not going to get it. He again gets to talking about all of the excesses and what happens. And I want to, this is worthy of study, guys, and worthy of paying attention to, and I want to share it with you. Consider what happens if nitrogen is oversupplied. First of all, too much nitrogen can induce a zinc deficiency. Zinc 
is instrumental in moisture absorption, and therefore it takes more water to do the same job in corn production. Here's a little tip. You want to drought-proof your corn? Don't overuse nitrogen and make sure you have enough zinc. Also, excessive amounts of nitrogen tie up copper. Copper is what confers stock strength to the plant. That is why the field that gets nitrogen the proper amount will exhibit quite a different scene from the one that gets too much. In the last case, you can actually cut the stock at tassel near the ground and see the inside starting to disintegrate. By the time the plant is matured, there will be hardly anything left in the bottom of the stalks. Guys, that's how we end up with a lot of disease. When we're copper deficient, we're going to get a disease. When we do things wrong, we're going to pay for it. This is America. You have the freedom. You have freedom to do all kinds of things. And everybody wants to yell and scream and, boy, I, want my, I got my rights and I got my freedoms. You know, 40 years ago, we talked about rights and responsibilities. And the fact of the matter is you do have rights. You can do anything you want to do. However, you're not free from the consequences ever. And as we look at, at this, this is another place where it's just like that. There are several observations unveil the big problems associated with nitrogen overuse. Anhydrous in the strip suggests 20% more nitrogen, period. If you're going to put on nitrogen and you're going to do it in NH3, you've got to put more on. But the problem with that is microbial breakdown of humus is enhanced dangerously. Any nitrogen source can be dangerous if overused. Nitrogen drives out calcium, guys. So if we have a removal of 10% of calcium by nitrogen oversupply, this will increase the mag level by 10%. Calcium and magnesium, when we're looking at base saturations, as you know, if one goes up, the other one goes down, vice versa. So here's the thing. He says that removing 10% of your calcium by overusing nitrogen will result in your magnesium going up by 10%. This is why, one reason why, nitrogen from anhydrous ammonia has the reputation for making soils tight because it raises the mag level. And we know anytime that base saturation gets above 18%, that soil is going to start getting very, very tight. And then we got to figure out how it is we're going to fix that. Although sulfur occurs in the soil as a sulfate ion, guys, the major soil source of sulfur is humus. The higher the humus content, the less likely there is a need for sulfur. Therefore, the humus level and the rate of its increase or destruction is an index into sulfur availability. The bottom line remains the same. Overuse of nitrogen will burn out the humus supply and will destroy the sulfur storage system. Guys, I think part of the deal is in ag, we've really hit a, a wall here. We've actually broke through a barrier, if you will, because we've seen this need for sulfur go up so much. Now, that's partly due to the fact that we took sulfur out of diesel fuel and we put scrubbers and smokestacks and all those things. However, the fact of the matter is we've also because of what we've been taught and what we do, we have burnt a lot of the humus out. And so therefore, we're getting clobbered with a need for a bunch more sulfur. Again, everything works together. Everything is important. There's no insignificant things. Guys, we know this. We know that too much nitrogen kills mycorrhiza. Those little boogers are important. Why? Because they exist. They live right in the root zone, right next to the root. And they eat phosphorus, and then they die, and then that phosphorus is left in their bodies, and the roots can take that in. What else do we know? Well, we learned last year that if we want those little boogers to come back, if we want a flourishing mycorrhiza population, we're going to have to get that boron level back to where it needs to be. When I get into boron, we'll talk more about this, but we're looking at boron levels. The most common thing I'm getting is guys saying, yeah, my boron levels are 0.2 or 0.3. 
And as a bare minimum, folks, they have to be 0.8 parts per million or you're going to get hurt. So we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing here because using too much nitrogen makes your phosphorus unavailable. And so we can take a look at how to make phosphorus work better if we properly use our nitrogen. Getting into the book from the soil up by Schrieffer, a couple things there I want to share. And guys, I want to encourage you, all these books, you can buy them. You can sit around and you can read on them through the winter here and grab some ideas and figure out what you can do. He's going through here and he says, nitrogen is a growth element. An excess of nitrogen accelerates vegetative growth. That's why we put it on and our corn crop jumps and we're all excited. And that can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. Excessive top growth can create deficiencies in other nutrients, setting the stage for disease, insects, and reduced yield. And those are not things that we find that we want to get. And so again, while it sounds like the savior of everything, everything in moderation, everything done at the right rate, Schrieffer says, we strongly believe that the triad of nitrogen, phosphorus, and zinc will always better in combination than when used singularly. We want to make sure that we know we're putting all those things on together and they're in adequate amounts because it's what it's going to take to make it work. Nitrogen always functions best in the presence of phosphorus. That's why row-placed phosphorus helps us because in the presence of adequate phosphorus in that little plant, that little plant is going to more effectively use its nitrogen and it's going to work. Phosphorus is also necessary for the energy release within the cells during the uptake period of rapid vegetative growth. So in other words, we can get a lot of nitrogen in there and it's kind of like saying, all right, we've put a bunch of gas into the engine, a bunch of gas in there. All right, but if we're starving it for oxygen, all we do is flood it. If you guys are old enough to remember a carburetor, you know, you could pull the choke on and you could put a lot of gas in the engine, but it wouldn't run. Why? Because it was needing oxygen. And this is the same thing. We can put a lot of gas on, we put a lot of nitrogen in there, but if we're starving it for phosphorus, we're not going to get the results that we want. Nitrogen is a very unique element because we put it on and it starts out as a cation, you know, with a positive charge which is good because the soil has a negative charge and so it sticks to the soil colloid and doesn't run away from us. However, once it moves from ammonia into nitrite and then into nitrate, now all of a sudden it went from cation to anion and it has a negative charge and so it's actually repelled by the charge of the soil and it tends to fall down. Guys, one of the things to consider and one of the reasons that I like 28 and 32 is the fact that we know that that corn plant requires both kinds of nitrogen, both ammonium and nitrate. It will take either one in. If you have pure nitrate at the end of the growing life, it's going to take it in. Even though it needs ammonia, it's going to take in the nitrate. And then it's going to waste energy converting it back to ammonia. And so what do we want to do? Well, ideally, we would give it a 50-50 mix all the way through. That's why I'm very fond of 28 and 32, and then stabilizing that 28 or 32 to help keep that in that blend throughout the growing season for that plant. Again, the inhibitors are important. I'm not going to name names. I'm just going to tell you that you need to look very carefully at those. Guys, this is a pleasure to do for me, and I look forward to doing these throughout the month here. We would hope that we can have our 12 days of nutrients done before we get to Christmas Eve. Let me just go ahead and say this. I hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas season. You remember the reason for the season, and I really look forward to doing these with you. I hope that you tune in and you follow us on Facebook or you follow us on our podcast at A Better Way to Farm or you slip on over to TikTok and see some short form video and feel free to swing by betterwaytofarm.com 
take the profit calculator and see what you can learn there that might help you have a better 2023. FYI, we are going to be doing a whole series of these fundamentals of agronomy where we spend hours in a classroom setting going over these kinds of things for a period of two days. And if you find interest in that, you ought to reach out to us. We'd love to help you in any way that we can if you could get just a little bit better. Guys, we appreciate you tuning in. Thank you very much, and we hope you really are having a better day. A better way to farm.com. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com.